So, believe it or not, we're up to part 19. Part 19. Uh, And this is a new TV. It's supposed to be a a better picture, I hope. Yes? No? Maybe? Uh, Okay, good. Good, it's a better picture. Yes. So we're making technological improvements. So we have a a brand new TV. So... um, uh, let's go through what we're going to learn today. So today, uh, the, the flood has finished, and Noah and his family are coming off the ark. And the first thing that Noah does is he builds an ark and offers a sacrifice. God resolves not to destroy his creation again. God blesses Noah and his sons and commands them to fill the earth. God permits meat-eating for the first time uh, here in the post-flood world. God commands the death penalty for murder. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah, and we'll talk about that covenant. The covenant includes all of Noah's descendants and all living creatures. And he provides a sign for that covenant. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, we'll do a little review about where we were last time. So last time was the very end of the flood, so the flood had was subsiding, so the flood had uh, gone up, it had prevailed over the earth, and then last time we talked about the process by which it subsided, and what Noah did on the ark as the flood was subsiding. Uh, we saw that the, the flood lasted a whole, uh, over a year. And then at the end we talked about an ice age, and we'll, we'll, I'll do a little review of that, because I didn't get to some of the things I wanted to say about the ice age. So, uh, essentially, last time we talked about the, ends, the, the events in the last seven months of the flood. Uh, the ark coming to the rest, the, the peaks of the mountains finally poking up from the water, uh, the surface of the ground um, looking like it was dry, but it was still probably pretty deep mud, and then finally the earth's dry and they come out of the ark. So the flood account gives us this ability by giving us exact uh, day, months and days to, to, uh, to track the events, to, to build a timeline of the flood. Um, and that uh, the story, as we mentioned, is in the form of a chiasmus, and that means that there is a symmetry between events at the beginning and the end such that the story is easier to remember. And so we talked about some of these things like and this chiasmus covers three chapters, this chapter 6 through chapter 9. There are several chiasmus in uh, the book of Genesis. This is the biggest one. It covers three whole chapters. Um, and so in chapter 6, we see Noah and his sons. In chapter 9, we see Noah and his sons. Uh, in chapter 6, we see all life on earth. In chapter 9, we see all life on earth. And so on, all the way down to the, uh, you know, the entry in the ark, the exit from the ark. The waters increase, the waters decrease. And the center of that chiasmus is God remembers Noah in verse 8, 1, verse 1 of chapter 8. Uh, so we have this day-by-day account, and the ark comes to rest in uh, a certain day and month, uh, the seventh, the 17th day of the seventh month of Noah's 600th year. Um, it comes to rest. The mountain peaks are still hidden. Um, and then it's coming to rest in a place called the mountains of Ararat, and there's been great conjecture about whether we could find the ark or not find the ark. And we talked about last time... Um, that um, if you don't find the ark, that doesn't mean there wasn't a flood. I, I pointed out that nobody's ever been able to find the Mayflower, uh, the ship, the Mayflower. Nobody knows what happened to that thing. And that doesn't mean that the pilgrims never came to America just because we can't find the Mayflower. Um, and most likely the wood of the ark was used because there were no trees at that point. And it took some time for trees to grow and for there to be lumber available. Uh, but there was this great gigantic ocean liner sized thing made of wood right there that they could have used to make animal pens and to make shelters and homes and things like that. Okay, Uh, then we talked about the fact that uh, Noah is very patient. Uh, He waits for a while even after he sees dry land um, and then he starts sending out birds and there's a series of birds. He sends out a raven. Uh, The raven doesn't come back. Then he sends out a dove, and the dove comes back because it can't find a place uh, to land. Uh, The water, there's still water uh, everywhere out there. Um, Then Noah waits, and he sends it out again. The second time he sends out the dove, it comes back with an olive leaf, which means that there has been enough time where somewhere the land has been free of of water long enough for a seed to plant and and come up and have an, an olive leaf. Uh, but he still waits 
another seven days and sends out the dove again. Uh, so he's waited three weeks while he's sending out these birds. Uh, and he still doesn't come out of the ark. He waits another month after the birds. And he takes the top off and he looks around and he says, hey, it looks dry. And then he still waits. He waits another two months, um, all of January and February, essentially, of that second year. Um, and now it really looks dry. So it, it, not only is the water gone, but now it looks like the mud has dried up finally uh, around where the ark is. Uh, and then God orders Noah to leave the ark. He, te- he tells Noah, hey, leave the ark, you, you and your family and everything that's in the ark. And we get a description again of everything that was on the ark, the eight people and all the animals. Uh, and once again, Noah obeys God. That's a constant theme in this story of Noah. When God says something, Noah doesn't. Then we talked at the very end about the Ice Age, and I want to go over some of the things about this Ice Age and some things I wasn't able to get to last time. So uh, we have strong evidence, geological evidence, that there was um, um, once glaciers over uh, Canada and all the way into the United States and northern Europe and northern Asia. Um, Evolutionists uh, typically claim that there was a series of Ice Ages Um, The evidence is better explained, I think, by a series of advance and retreat stages of one ice age. Um, And it's a mystery to many in the evolutionary community how we could have got the conditions for an ice age. Um, You need a colder climate, uh, but you also need warm oceans because you need lots of water evaporation to make an ice age. Um, And you can see this in operation in our world today. Uh, Antarctica is classified as a desert because it's cold. Not only is it cold on Antarctica, but the oceans surrounding Antarctica are very cold. And so there's very little evaporation from the oceans surrounding Antarctica. So there's no precipitation. There's no snowfall there, almost no snowfall there. And in the tropics, where the ocean is warm, you have lots of evaporation from the oceans, and you get lots and lots and lots and lots of rain in the tropics. And so in order to have an ice age, you need to have warm oceans where there's lots of evaporation at the same time as you have cold continents, which causes the precipitation that then falls to be snow instead of rain. So how do you get that? How do you get warm oceans and cold continents? Well, uh, it turns out that the Flood conditions, the post-flood conditions were perfect for an ice age. We have these um, large igneous provinces, evidence of huge lava flows, huge fields of lava, much more extensive than anything we see today, called large igneous provinces. Many of them in ocean basins, some of them on continents, but all of them during the flood, of course, would have been underwater. And so all of that lava pouring out at the same time would have warmed the oceans, And then we also have evidence of massive volcanic eruptions in the immediate post-flood world, much larger than volcanic eruptions that we see today. And and, and putting lots and lots and lots of particulate matter into the atmosphere blocks the sun, reflects the sunlight, and cools the temperatures. And so the post-flood conditions are perfect to have warm oceans and cold continents, which gives you an ice age. Uh, We talked about Mount Pinatubo as an example. 15 to 30 million tons of sulfur dioxide went into the atmosphere from Mount Pinatubo. Um, That uh, sulfur dioxide uh, caused uh, sulfuric acid. This is way up in the stratosphere where it's uh, not subject to weather. And uh, reflected about 10%, uh, 10% less sunlight getting to the Earth because of Mount Pinatubo and global temperatures measurably dropped in the aftermath of Mount Pinatubo uh, for two years after Mount Pinatubo. Now, Mount Pinatubo was a big volcano by today's standards, but Mount Pinatubo is right there, that size of stuff going up in the air, compared to the amount of stuff that went up in these three volcanoes that happened in the immediate post-flood world. uh, one in Long Valley, USA, one in Yellow, two in Yellowstone. Um, there's another one in the Utah border as well that's not shown on here that's even bigger. Um, the Wawa Springs volcano. So, w- we have evidence, geological evidence, that there was huge volcanoes in the immediate post-flood world, and that would have caused a lot of particulate matter in the atmosphere that would have reflected a lot more sunlight back 
than Pinatubo did and caused, caused a lot more global cooling than Pinatubo did. And so those are conditions that you need for an ice age. Um, then I, I did a little detour about um, dating the Earth based on ice cores. So uh, going back a few decades, uh, dating the Earth by ice cores was very popular. And one of the reasons it was so popular is because it gave hundreds of thousands or millions of years and uh, invalidated the biblical account of the biblical timeline. Um, and scientists very confidently proclaimed that here, look, we can look at this ice core. It's got hundreds of thousands or millions of years from Greenland, for example. And therefore, we know that the Bible timeline can't be right. Well, then... Um, a curious thing happened in 1988. There was a, first of all, there was a squadron of P-38 aircraft in World War II, 1942, that crash landed in Greenland. And so they were on the surface in 1942. And so then a, a guy decided he wanted to go find these aircraft in 1988. And because of how they counted ice cores, he thought those aircraft would only be a few meters under the surface. Um, when he went to look for them in 1988, because that's a very short amount of time. There can't have been very many ice layers over the top of those aircraft. Well, he, it took him 12 years to find it, and when he found it, they were 79 meters down, uh, over 250 feet down um, under the ice. In just 46 years, 42 to 88, 46 years, 46 years, it was buried under 79 million, uh, 79 meters, 250 feet of ice, which all along the scientists have been saying represented hundreds of thousands or millions of years worth of ice. And that much, so there's a picture of it in 1942 after it crash landed. Um, and so now we have definitive proof that those ice layers don't represent hundreds of thousands or millions of years. 79 meters in just 46 years. Um, and there's a picture of it today. They, they brought it up from the ice and put it together, and now it flies. They call it Glacier Girl. Um, and so what, what happens is, what happened is, the, the layers of ice there do not represent years. They represent individual snowstorms. And in Greenland, you can have more than one snowstorm in a day. You could have multiple snowstorms, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, and, and certainly you would have hundreds in a year. Um, and so those layers of ice do not represent hundreds of thousands of years. They simply don't. We know for certain because of this aircraft. Now, before this aircraft was found, my point that I made last time is science, secular scientists very confidently said, the, the, the Greenland ice cores are absolute proof that the Bible timeline is incorrect. They were very, very confident about that, and they were very, very wrong. And that is, I, I'm a scientist, I've, I've, I'm a physicist, um, and so I've been dealing in the academic world with scientists all my adult life. And they're, they're always very confident, and even when they're wrong. Um, and so... Uh, this is an example of a time when, when they're, they're certainly were wrong about this, uh, but you never would have known it from listening to a lecture of somebody that was a, a true expert in these ice cores, going on and on about the hundreds of thousands and millions of years in the ice core sample. Uh, it simply isn't so. Uh, and there are many other examples like that. Um, I, I, won't, I don't have time to get into them, but... Uh, things with dating methods. I mentioned coal before. I mentioned diamond before. That uh, yes. Sorry to interrupt. Um, mm -hmm. Do you know how uh, the scientists from the 1940s or 19, the 1980s have uh, dated uh, for samples and core samples so that they would extrapolate the millions of years? How did they do that? So uh, what they did was they counted the layers, okay. and they they counted each layer as a year. They said this must be a year worth of ice, you know, however much snow falls, it compressed, and that must be a year. Um, and so that's, that was essentially the method. Count, count the layers, and that's how many years there are. And it turns out, no, that, 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 that uh, hundreds of thousands of layers 
were on top of this 1942 aircraft. Um, and, you know, there were a whole bunch of speculations at the beginning. Well, maybe it sank down through the ice. Uh, but, of course, the, um, if something sinks through ice, you get a, actually a lip as it goes down through. It, it's bent around where it went down through. And so you can, you, there's evidence of that if it happens. And there's no evidence of that here. So it didn't sink down through. Those layers just went up above it. Yeah, so, so those kinds of things, uh, in, so I've been studying this particular kind of issue, the, the creation evolution thing, for 40 years. I've been studying it for 40 years. Um, and things like this come up over and over and over again. This is not the only one. Okay, um, so at the end of the Ice Age, so as the glaciers start to melt, they start to retreat, um, we have evidence, geological evidence, of huge lakes that they left behind. Huge lakes that don't exist today, but existed then. Um, one of those is, is Lake Missoula, which was most of the western part of Montana. It was a gigantic lake. You can see the, the, the lake bed. You can see evidence of the shoreline of that lake into, in, if you look at the geology today. Um, so it was a huge lake, and it had an ice dam at one end of it. And eventually that ice dam melted, and water poured out. 500 cubic miles of water poured out from that land, uh, from that uh, lake, and formed what's called the channeled scab lands of eastern Washington. Has anybody been to eastern Washington and seen? I've seen it, the channeled scab lands. It's amazing. It, it, looks, it looks a little bit like the badlands of North Dakota. It's got these canyons everywhere. Um, and it's from this flood, the runoff from this flood. Uh, the, the, the dam burst, the ice dam burst, all the water from this Lake Missoula poured out all at once and formed the channelized scab land and also the, most of the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, 500 cubic miles of water coming out all at once. Uh, and that was about 500 years after the flood. So it looks like this. So uh, eastern Montana there was mostly a big giant lake. There was some sort of an ice dam there at the western end of it that eventually melted and all the water poured out and formed the Channel Scadlands in eastern Washington and the Columbia River Gorge. And even secular uh, geologists believe this, that this happened. Okay. No, they don't. Of course, they did it millions of years ago. Uh, yes, they do. <clears throat> Um, so what happens if you take a whole bunch of water out of the ocean, it evaporates, 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 it falls on the continents as snow, and it doesn't melt? What happens to the oceans? The ocean level goes down, right? So lots of water came out of the ocean and didn't go back in there because it's trapped in the glaciers. And so uh, the best estimates we have uh, about uh, this time period is that you have to make a guess at how much ice was in those glaciers. And the best guess is that much ice would lower sea levels by, global sea levels by about 300 feet. So imagine the ocean's 300 feet lower. 300, 300 feet. So the oceans go down 300 feet. And so if, so then you take a, a map of the world, a globe, and you, you make everything in the ocean that's less than 300 feet deep now, and you make it land. And if you do that, then an interesting thing happens. There's land connecting Asia and North America. And so people could walk from Asia into North America. But wouldn't that also be covered with ice? So wouldn't it all be covered with ice? Yeah. yeah. But what happens when you have a very warm ocean? What is the, what is the climate like right on the, right on the coast when you have a really warm ocean? Foggy. Right on the coast, right on the coast, you would not have glaciers right on the coast, right up next to an 85-degree ocean. Right? There would not be glaciers there. So the coast would be fine for people to walk. So they would have hugged the ocean and walked along the coast. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have gone inland because there's glaciers in there. But the coast would have been fine to walk on. Uh, yes. So, yes, so they walked across from, um, from Asia to North America. Now, there were also land bridges, for example, uh, to the Philippines. Land bridge. If you if you bring that uh, the area in the South China Sea there is very shallow. Uh, if you bring sea levels down 300 feet, you can walk to the Philippines. You can also walk between Asia, uh, Australia, and, and Papua New Guinea. Uh, you can also walk along this 
in this island chain here to Papua New Guinea and to Australia. Um, so there's all kinds of implications of the fact that we had an ice age that allowed animals to spread out all over the earth. Okay, so I didn't get to get to that the last time, so I wanted to make sure I covered that, because that's a question that you get from time to time. Yes? Sahara Desert. So, Sahara Desert, yes. Yeah, so we, we have deserts uh, all over the world today. Um, and so uh, I, I think, here's my guess. Um, after the flood, there was um, a kind of climactic chaos for a little while until things settled down. So uh, another one of the implications of having really warm oceans uh, what else does really warm oceans do? It causes uh, very severe hurricanes. Very severe hurricanes. If you make the ocean water uh, 10 degrees warmer, you get much bigger hurricanes than you get today. Um, so that would be a disaster if there were people there. And so, for example, how many hurricanes do they have in the Middle East? None. 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 So they don't get hurricanes. So God put the ark where there weren't hurricanes. And everywhere else in the globe, there's these gigantic hurricanes that are sweeping around where nobody lives. Um, but in the Middle East, where they don't get hurricanes, that's just happened to be where God set the ark down. Um, in the Middle East, where they didn't have glaciers, right? So the climate was temperate. They didn't have, uh, they don't have earthquakes there. They don't have uh, hurricanes there. So God just happened to put the ark down where it, they wouldn't run into all those kinds of problems. But... Uh, uh, the the long-term climate, I think, had to settle down after the flood. And eventually it did settle down, and it settled down to the point where you ended up with some places that were temperate zones, some places that were uh, desert, some places that are tropical. And in the northern part of Africa, you have the Sahara Desert where it's very, very dry, um, almost no rainfall, and so you have a desert. Um, now, you also have the same sort of thing in the western United States, only it's not nearly as hot most of the time because it's so high above sea level. So you have a very, very dry climate in the southwestern United States, but it's got a high elevation that keeps it from being as uh, hot. So yeah, I think it's a speculation, but I think that the climate was really wacky right after the flood and settled down. And it settled down to kind of the different zones of climate that we have today. But it took some time, you know, 500 years worth of an ice age afterwards as the oceans very gradually cooled from all that lava being in there, uh, as the, the effects of all those gigantic um, volcanic eruptions abated so that the sun could come back in, then the climate settled down to what we see today. Yes? You rocked my world when you said the ocean dropped by 300 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a humongous volume of water. Yep. And first of all, where do we get the number 300? And how high did they did folks think the glaciers were during that time? Well, some of them are thousands of feet thick. Thousands of feet thick. Yeah. So really big. So there's a lot of... So the, the, you have to do a calculation based on how... You know, what the volume of ice we think there was in all these glaciers in all the way across Canada, all the way across the northern part of the United States, all the way across northern Russia, all the way across northern Europe. Uh, how much ice is that? Some, you know, scientist whose who's expertise, glaciology, there's actual glaciologists, people that, spec, that uh, um, are experts in glaciers. And those people have made, that's the guess that I'm using is the, the standard glaciologist answer is it was 300 feet of sea level, based on their guess of how much ice was in those glaciers. So, are they right? I don't know. But it, but using that as a best guess from the quote experts, you get land bridges all around the world for animals to travel from the ark to all these different habitations. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes. Real quick. Are you saying that the Ice Age uh, was a product of the flood? Mm-hmm. And so you would date this to the time of Noah? Yes. To, yep. Yeah, yeah. Immediately after the flood, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons I do that is be, because 
there are these geological called moraines. The the, the um, when when glaciers advance and retreat, so glaciers move, they grind up rock and and leave behind. Um, characteristic uh, like pebbles and gravel behind them uh, that, that modern geologists use to say, hey, there was a glacier here. Um, and if that happened before the flood, it would have been wiped out by the flood. And so it has to be, have been after the flood. So that's why I did it after the flood. The, the kind of the thing yep. you're saying, people, whether you're creationist or evolutionist, agree in the order of events. They just don't agree on a how far ago they have it. Uh, that's in many cases that's that's absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a way to say that they caught this that they were up together or was it just that they were bridged by ice? So this is uh, what I'm what I'm showing here is um, after the flood, assuming the continents are in the places they are now, if you lower sea levels by 300 feet, you get land between Asia and Alaska for example, and all, all other places all around the world, too, that are currently not connected. Like, you can walk to Australia. Um, you can walk to the Philippines from Asia uh, if you lower the sea levels by 300 feet. So. Okay. Uh, I, I do need to get to today's lesson, eventually. Uh, so, the post-flood world. So, we're going to get into the post-flood world. So, the last part of Chapter 8 and the first part of Chapter 9 is Noah. What happened is when they came off into this post-flood world. So, uh, if you'll open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter eight, we're gonna we're gonna study a few verses here. Um, there's there's I think three or four verses left at the three verses at the end of uh, chapter eight, and then we're gonna go into chapter nine as well. And so, here's what the Word of God says about what happened after the flood. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And then chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood." Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he has made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold... I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Um, Okay, one thing I want to point out before we even get started 
Every single time you see flood in there, it's the Hebrew word mabul. Every time. Every time. The, there are other Hebrew words for flood, as I mentioned before, that describe little floods. But every single incidence of the English word flood here, it's the Hebrew word mabul, the Greek word cataclysmos, um, talking about a big flood that runs over the whole earth, not a little flood that comes in the springtime. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I just put this in there because this is a picture from last week at the lake behind my house. Um, and you can see a rainbow, and it's reflected in the lake. And so this sign of the covenant is with us today for anybody to see. Uh, in fact, uh, this is once again the lake behind my house. There's actually a double rainbow. So you can see that um, today. So I, this is from last week at uh, the lake behind my house. Um, so uh, what are we going to talk about here with this covenant, with the, God's covenant with Noah? So Noah builds an altar and sacrifices one of each of the clean animals and birds. And now we see why there were seven instead of an even number. So it's really goofy that there's seven of them. He tells them to come in by pairs. Everything's by pairs, 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 pairs. And the clean animals are seven. So did we ever wonder why there were seven? Or why is there an odd number of these clean creatures? Well, Noah's going to slaughter one of every single one of them. So there, seven is good because then once he slaughters one, there's still, a pair, there's still three pairs left for all of them. Uh, so God commits himself never to flood the whole earth again. He gives a sign of the rainbow. Uh, we see that even this fresh start failed to solve the underlying problem, man's post-fall sin nature. God points it out. The, the nature of man's heart is evil. Um, he speaks to Noah and his three sons. He commands them to multiply and fill the earth. Uh, repeat of the command he gave to Adam and Eve. And we'll take a look at that. Uh, he introduces a new freedom. Uh, man may now eat animals, whereas before this, God commanded a vegetarian diet. There's also a new mandate. Uh, man must execute a murderer and any animal that kills a human being. And there's no biblical evidence that, evidence that this command was ever rescinded. Uh, so let's take a look at the scripture. So he comes out and he builds an ark. Uh, he builds an altar, I'm sorry. He comes out of the ark and builds an altar. First thing he does, builds an altar. And he sacrifices um, on the altar. Uh, the Lord, you know, this is an anthropomorphism. The Lord doesn't have a nose and he doesn't smell things. This is a, uh, we'll talk about what the meaning of this thing is. Uh, he says to himself, so this is the Lord talking to himself. And so the Trinity, they're talking to themselves. And um, that he has decided he's not going to flood the earth again, even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Even though the sin nature is still there. Uh, even in somebody like Noah, and we'll see that in the next lesson. Um, and then he says that the, the, the seasons are going to go, the days and the nights and the seasons are going to go on. Uh, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. They're not going to cease uh, in, as long as the earth remains. So, And, of course, we have these uh, wonderful pictures like this one here, and everything is all pristine, and it's nice, and there's an altar there, and... But what would happen if, if, if you slaughtered thousands of animals? There would be blood and nastiness everywhere. And actually that's part of the point, that there's blood and nastiness everywhere. There would not be a pristine altar there with dry stones if he slaughtered thousands of animals there. There would be nastiness and blood everywhere. Okay, last week we saw the flood lasted a year, and then God committed Noah to bring everyone out, every, everyone and everything out. He builds an altar, misbeach, a Hebrew word that implies a place of slaughter. Misbeach, an altar, a place of slaughter. Um, not a nice, thing, shiny thing like that with uh, no blood on it. Uh, the altar is built to Yahweh. It says uh, it uses God's personal covenant name here in this part. He builds this uh, covenant, uh, this altar to the personal God, Yahweh. And, of course, as I mentioned, it would have taken a tremendous slaughter and a considerable time to sacrifice one of every kind of clean animal and bird. Nasty business. Nasty business. Um, we, most of the pictures we see look like this. And you can hear the, the kind of the angelic music in the background. But if you're going to slaughter thousands of animals, nasty business. Um, okay. Uh, God reacts to Noah's offering. The word translated soothing here in, in this version. In other translations, it's pleasing, pleasing aroma. Uh, Nikoak, 
um, is it's the 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 idea is it's a pleasant thing, it's a pleasing thing. Uh, so the point is that God was pleased by Noah's attitude in this extensive sacrifice, which consumed a significant portion of the clean animals then alive. Uh, one out of seven, that's 16%. So 16% of all the possible food supply just went up in smoke as a sacrifice to God. Um, that's a significant sacrifice. Uh, then God reveals that even though men are still inherently sinful because of the fall, he will never again destroy everything with a flood. This is God talking to himself. He hasn't yet said this to Noah and his family. He reveals to us here in Genesis, still talking to himself, that the days and seasons will go on from that time forward without interruption while the earth remains. Notice that it's while the earth remains, all this stuff is going to happen. So what does that tell you? That that's kind of a foreshadowing that the earth will not always remain. And we see that from Second Peter chapter 3, that the present earth is reserved for fire. Peter in Second Peter chapter 3 specifically goes back to the flood and says that the pre-flood world was destroyed by water. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, uh, and they will be destroyed um, at the second coming of Christ. Okay, uh, so then God starts talking to Noah. Uh, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Noah and his sons, there's the eight people there, Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. The, the Bible says he's addressing Noah and his sons. And he tells them, he gives them a command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. In order to fill the earth, they need to spread out, fill it up. He doesn't tell them to hey, stay where you are, he says fill the earth. The fear of you, the terror of you will be on every beast. So things are going to be different between men and animals. Um, and, he, and, and notice at the, end of, in the, at the end of verse 2 there, into your hand they are given. He, he lists everything on earth, all the animals. And so this is once again a reiteration of the dominion mandate, that, that men have dominion over God's creation. He's giving them. God has all the authority over his creation. He's delegating some authority to men to have dominion over the creatures. And then he, he also says that he's going to give them for food, uh, animals for food. Uh, so he, he, he blesses Noah and his sons. And this time, instead of the covenant name Yahweh, he, it, the, the Bible uses Elohim. Uh, that's God's name as the almighty creator of the universe. So when God is, is, is using his authority over his creation and delegating some of the authority as creator, then the Bible tends to use the, his name as creator, Elohim, almighty creator of the universe. Uh, it's appropriate for the command that he's about to give. So notice it's to Noah and his sons. We call this the Noahic covenant, uh, but um, this whole thing is being given to not just Noah. Uh, in this instance, with the dominion mandate, it's given to Noah and his sons. And it's a repeat of the command that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Notice they were supposed to spread out to fill the earth. And we will see in Genesis chapter 11 that they flagrantly, ostentatiously disobeyed this command. Um, so the Bible doesn't record Noah and his wife having any children after the flood. Uh, so it's Noah's sons and their wives who will reproduce in the post-flood world, and that's why he's given this command to not just Noah, but his sons, because they're the ones that are going uh, to fulfill it. So if we step back to Genesis one twenty-eight, we get God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's the same command, same command God had given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 before the fall, he now repeats it to Noah and his sons after the flood. Same exact command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, roll over it. Um, so God is telling Ad, uh, Noah and his sons, hey, I've given, I gave this command before to Adam and Eve, and now I'm giving it to you. You need to multiply, be fruitful, you need to spread out and fill the whole earth with people. That's my command to you. Uh, however, there's a big difference between the world of Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. So what happened in between? So God, in Genesis 1, God created everything very good. There was a perfect harmony between man and animals. So there was harmony between 
man and God. There was harmony between man and man. There was harmony between man and creation. Uh, and that was all ruined by the fall. And so Genesis 1, the original um, dominion mandate, is given before the fall. Then we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It ruins all that harmony. And now there has just been a cataclysmic judgment where God wiped out everything on the earth except what was in the ark. So, so instead of harmony that, <coughs> that was in the original, uh, at the time of the original uh, command to Adam and Eve, now instead there is fear, marah, and terror, hot, um, of man, between man and animals. No more harmony. <coughs> All the animals, fish, birds are given into men's hands. This is the idea that men have dominion over the creation over the animals. Uh, but now, additionally, men are allowed to eat animals. Originally, men had dominion over animals, but they weren't supposed to eat them. Now, they have dominion over animals. They're given into his hand, but men are also allowed to eat the animals. So, God is explicitly referring back here to Genesis 1.29 when he gave plants for food. Originally, he gave plants for food, and let's review that, a refresher from chapter 1. Note from Genesis 1.29 that people were permitted to eat every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. That's Genesis 1.29. God told people they're allowed to eat plants, plants and fruit. Notice from Genesis 1.30 that the animals were given every green plant for food. So animals were allowed to eat plants as well, but not other animals. And God finishes Genesis 1.29 and 30, this little section of scripture, by saying, And it was so. And so it's not just that God said this and everybody ignored it. Um, the Bible tells us that this is how it was. God said this is how it's going to be, and that's how it was. And it was so. People ate plants, animals ate plants. Um, and so there was no carnivory permitted among people or animals prior to the fall. Uh, and God did not change this command for people until after the flood, as we see here in Genesis chapter 9. And, and he specifically refers back, and he says, hey, remember when I gave you plants to eat back there in Genesis 1, now I'm giving you animals. That's how God puts it to uh, Noah and his sons. Um, so, then, then we get uh, this thing about um, uh, murder, and what happens if, if a man or an animal sheds man, uh, man's blood. Surely I will require your life, but from every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And so this passage introduces a, a, a new law. Uh, man must not shed innocent human blood, and if he does, his own blood will be shed. Yes, sorry. Um. There's an implication here pointing back to Cain, right? Mm -hmm. There's an implication here pointing back to Laban, I think is his name? Lamech. Lamech, thank you. Yep. That there was killing going on, and now God's setting up a place here for this. By implication, does this mean that animals sometimes killed people? back before the flood also. So that could be. We don't, we don't know for certain because there's no record of it. But yes, it's certainly possible that in addition to men killing men, which we know for certain from Cain and Abel and from Lamech writing a poem to brag about killing somebody, um, that people were killing people. And uh, Genesis chapter 6 tells the earth was full of violence, mm -hmm. uh, which, which indicates that there was lots of murder going on. Um, now that could also include... Uh, violence from animals, but we just don't know. Could be, could be. Okay, um, and so we have this new law. Um, it's uh, that if somebody sheds a, the blood of a person, then that person has forfeited his own blood. Um, so in this point forward, God has instituted the death penalty for murder. So notice that God did not kill Cain, for example. Um, so he punished Cain, he exiled Cain, he, you know, this, he, he cursed, he made it so that the ground wouldn't yield. It's, he was a farmer, and then, the, of course, the, he, he, his crops would fail. He cursed him, but he didn't kill him. So Cain didn't get the death penalty for killing his brother. But now here in Genesis chapter 9, God said the death penalty for somebody who, who murders. Uh, nowhere else in the Bible is the command ever rescinded. 
Uh, and this law is not just given for one nation. So there are examples in the Bible of specific laws for the nation of Israel, for example. Um, but this is not like that. This is a general law that's given to, uh, in a whole section of scripture, that everything in here is talking about Noah and his descendants. Uh, and, um, and so who are, no- who are Noah's descendants? Everybody, right? Everybody alive now, everybody that's ever been alive since the flood is a descendant of Noah. And so this is a very general law made here. Not a specific law for one nation, but a very general law, death penalty for murder. Uh, and then, of course, we get in the Ten Commandments, a uh, 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 fact that uh, thou shalt not murder. But this is a, a kind of a general, overarching, a um, death penalty for murder. Um, the reason for this punishment is also given. So notice that God normally says, this is the punishment, this is the crime, this is the punishment, and this is the reason why this is the punishment. For, in the image of God, he made man. So murder destroys an image bearer of God. And the Hebrew word here is Elohim, the almighty creator of the universe. So an image bearer of the almighty creator of the universe has been destroyed. That is such a heinous crime. Uh, that it must be dealt with severely. Yes, he was merciful to Cain. Uh, Cain whined about his punishment, but the fact is, God was merciful in letting him survive. It could have been mercy for parents. Yes, that's true. Could it could have been, been mercy for Adam and Eve. Like. Yes, quite possible. Mercy and grace, and also a warning for anybody that wants to take revenge on Cain. Uh, God says, no, don't do that, or you'll be punished more severely. Yes. Yeah, so there's... Um, um, yeah, we have to speculate because the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, uh, but there are some practical reasons. For example, um, it was going to take some time to get agriculture rolling. Um, so they come off the ark, they probably had seeds on the ark. They probably took with them seeds, uh, my guess. Um, but, you, you know, if you plant seeds, you don't instantly have food. Um, there's some time there. What are they going to do for food while they're waiting for the crops to grow and to bring them in and to, you know? So I think there was that's a, my guess is that's at least part of it that they needed food right away, and the food available was animals right away. Um, now there's also yeah go ahead Alan. Looking at it the other way, one of the practical advantages of being everybody, man and animals, being vegetarians before the flood. It's a whole lot easier to coexist in the ark. Yes. And God must have foreseen that. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, the other thing is that the, uh, the first uh, killing of an animal was what God did in Genesis 3 to protect the skins for Adam and Eve and to demonstrate that there's a substitute. Uh, and so, all the way up through this, including with, with uh, Noah, the, uh, the killing of animals still happened. It wasn't for food, but it was for sacrifice. Yep. And God wanted to, uh, apparently, make a distinction there that was, that was clear in, in every successive generation of mine, including Noah. He wasn't commanded at this point, there's no record of his being commanded, to sacrifice but he was in the habit of that because God had set that precedent. Right. Right. And so, and of course, all the sacrifices in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, are pointing forward to Jesus, the shedding of Christ's blood on the on the cross. Um, and so, the the reason for the, you know, the, the, as as Alan points out, there's no, we don't have any record in the Bible of God commanding these sacrifices. Going back to Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel were bringing sacrifices. That's all we get. They're bringing sacrifices. There's no record of God commanding them to make sacrifices. But there must have been some understanding that they were, this was something to do that they were supposed to do. And, and so they did. But it's, it's interesting that God, that, he does, that God has not seen fit to record in his scripture any of the commands to do sacrifices up until... Uh, the Levitical uh, set of sacrifices that are recorded for the nation of Israel. But it is clear from the whole 
counsel of scripture that these the, the sacrifices in these Old Testament are pointing forward to the cross, to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Um, but so and so one of the things that we get from these dietary laws is um, this clear vision of who is in charge. Who, who has authority over creation? God has authority over creation. And so God has, God and God alone has authority to make rules for his creation, including these kind of things like the dietary rules. So, and, and we see in the Bible that he makes several changes in these dietary rules. So in Genesis chapter 1, it's, it's only vegetarian diet. Genesis chapter 9, you can eat meat. And then we see with the nation of Israel all kinds of dietary rules, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And then in the book of Acts, we see a radical shift from all those things, these rules about what's clean and unclean. Uh, God has this vision for Peter, let's down the sheet, kill and eat Peter. Oh, no, I can't. You've, told, you've said that all these things are unclean. I can't eat them. And, and God, who has the authority to do so, changes the rules, changes what you can eat and what you can't eat. And so you, you can trace that from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9 to the Old Testament rules about what you could eat to at the book of Acts where uh, God says, no, you can eat these things that I previously said were unclean. And so this is just a mark of God's authority and that God does have the authority to change these rules. And, so, and sometimes we get a glimpse about why, and sometimes we don't really get a glimpse about why, he has decided to make these sort of changes. But, so he did. He made this, this massive change um, in dietary rules in Genesis chapter 9. And he'll do it again uh, in subsequent portions of Scripture. Because he is the creator of heaven and earth and has the authority to do so. Okay. Uh, and then he, then he says... It says to Noah and his sons, uh, they're supposed to be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth, and uh, abundantly multiply in it. Uh, He says to Noah and his sons that now, behold, I I myself establish my covenant. So this is the first explicit covenant in the Bible. Um, And with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle. So notice how broad this thing is. Uh, He emphasizes the command that, Uh, first he emphasizes this command to populate the earth abundantly and this is a repeat of what he had said before he said to multiply and fill the earth now he says to be fruitful and multiply so he's repeating himself Um, and so there's no way that their immediate descendants could claim that they didn't understand what he was talking about when they for example when they blatantly disregard this command in genesis 11 as we'll see he establishes what we call the noahic covenant Uh, Notice how broad this covenant is. God's addressing Noah and his sons, but the covenant also includes your descendants after you, um, which is every person who has walked the earth since the flood, including everyone on the surface of the earth today, every single person alive today. It also, notice, includes all the animals. This is a covenant not only with people and all of Noah and his descendants, all the people that have lived ever since then, all the way up to today, but also every living creature. This is a really, 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 really broad and general covenant. Every living creature that comes out of the ark. Um, and, so, and then he gives this, uh, this, um, um, this seal or sign of the covenant. It's come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a mabul, a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. So what's the scope? Forever. Uh, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So he repeats the parameters of the covenant. And then he gives this sign of the covenant to emphasize the settled and decisive nature of his promise. This is the first explicit covenant in the Bible, and it's remarkable for its breadth, embracing every living creature. It's permanence, all successive generations and everlasting. And it's generosity. It was unconditional. They didn't have to do anything. Undeserved. They didn't deserve it. Uh, They didn't have to do anything. They didn't deserve it. But they get this covenant, this promise from God. God includes every living creature, nefesh hayah, which shows God's concern for all his creatures. So there's balance here. I, I want you to notice this, that people are allowed to eat animals, 
They're also all given into our hand. They're, we're given dominion over the animals. But it's very, very clear that God cares about the animals. He includes every living creature, including animals, in this covenant, this promise. Uh, there's balance here. Um, there's not radical environmentalism where people are more important than animals. But there's also not a animals don't matter. Uh, God doesn't care about this that portion of his creation. That's not true either. There is balance here. So how significant is the flood in biblical history? Uh, so the Bible treats the flood, this is kind of a wrap-up of everything we've learned from about the flood over the last four lessons. The Bible treats the flood as a worldwide event directly brought by God as a judgment on the sin of humanity. The flood hangs like a warning cloud over all subsequent history. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Fortunately, that cloud also holds a rainbow of God's promised grace. So conditions in Noah's day were ripe for judgment. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God's judging. God brings this flood as a judgment on the wickedness of mankind. The verse contains one of the strongest and clearest statements about man's sinful nature after the fall. Many other verses make it clear that God had every reason for radical action here. Uh, there's lots of scripture that refer back to the wickedness before the flood and God's judgment of the flood. Jeremiah chapter 17, Matthew chapter 12 and 15, Mark chapter 7, Luke chapter 6. Other notable scriptures about the flood include Job chapter 12 and chapter 22, Psalm chapter 29, Psalm chapter 104, Isaiah 54, Matthew 24, Luke 17, Hebrews 11, 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2, and 2 Peter chapter 3. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of references to the flood in the rest of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's a, such a significant event in the history of the earth and the history of mankind. The flood is, illustrates several important aspects of God's character and God's relationship with his creation. God remains in ultimate control of world events, so he's sovereign over his creation. We see that demonstrated in un, no, um, no uncertain terms here with the flood. God's in charge. He does what he wants with his creation. God can and will judge sin. We see that very clearly here. And so... This is one of the, the, the positive benefits of, of knowing the story of the flood in today's world. We have a certainty that God will judge sin. And so um, in, Peter talks about this in, in the fact that people, uh, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and saying, where is this coming that he promised? Where, where is this judgment? Um, and Peter says, hey, look at the flood. Look what happened at the flood. God judged sin before. He's going to judge sin again in a worldwide event. That, uh, so God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just, uh, we see in the flood. And we also see in the story of the flood that God can and does exercise grace, even in judgment. So when he judges, he also exercises grace. We, uh, somebody brought up the, um, the, the story of Cain and Abel that Cain was severely punished, but God exercised grace even in the midst of that punishment of Cain. Same thing here. It's a very severe punishment. He killed most of the world population, but he also showed grace. He saved Noah and his family. And even though we see here in Genesis chapter 9 that Noah and his family were still subject to the fallen human nature, he still exercised mercy and grace in saving those eight people. And he also exercised his mercy and grace towards the animals. He brought animals onto the ark as well, uh, instead of wiping them all out. <clears throat> An equally universal and final judgment will be carried out on the world on God's timetable. So Christ is coming again, the second coming of Christ, the great white throne judgment. That's coming, but it's coming on God's timetable. Um, the same section of scripture in Second Peter chapter 3 says... 
Um, and it's talking about the second coming. That whole passage is talking about the second coming. Uh, that, uh, Peter says, know this, that for God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. What is Peter saying there? He's saying that the second coming is going to be on God's timetable, not man's timetable. That's what that whole section of scripture means right there. Um, that there's an equally universal judgment coming, and, and we're supposed to understand that and have an illustration of that when we look at the story of the flood. Okay, so what did we learn today? Uh, Noah builds an altar and sacrifices. God resolves not to destroy creation again. God blesses Noah and his sons and commands them to fill the earth. The command will see that they, his descendants disobeyed. God permits meat-eating. God commands death penalty for murder. God makes a covenant with Noah, but it's not just with Noah, it's with all his descendants and all the living creatures as well. And he makes a sign of the covenant. So, any questions? We have five minutes this time. Yes, Juanjin. Okay, so yes, yeah, so there's all sorts of things that <clears throat> are left unsaid. We mentioned before that there's, there's no mention in the scriptures that we can see in the book of Genesis that God commands these sacrifices, but obviously they know they're supposed to sacrifice. Now, what about uh, later on we get the command that you're supposed to have no other gods before me, that you're supposed to worship God and God alone. We don't see a command like that here in Genesis. So what's going on? Uh, has, has he never said that, or is that not clear? My, my speculation is that, yes, they, that's clear as well. Just like the, the fact that they're supposed to sacrifice, they know somehow, somehow they know they're supposed to worship this God as well. Now, even if you didn't know that, um, God had communicated directly here in chapter 9, all the way back to chapter 6, God's talking directly to uh, Noah and his sons, and first of all, he told them he's going to wipe out the whole earth with a flood, and then he does wipe out the whole earth with a flood. So who, who are you going to worship? Um, when you see that this is a God that has power over the entire earth. Um, and so, you know, maybe he didn't need to say it after they had just watched uh, him destroy the entire earth with a flood and save them. He tells them to build an ark before there's ever any rain, and lo and behold, the rain comes and destroys the whole earth. So, yeah, this is, I think they get a clear idea that this, hey, this is somebody to worship from the events of the flood, even if God didn't explicitly tell them. So. Just to add yep. on to that, uh, I think one of the most important things we have to understand is that the human race is getting simple or over degenerating, right? That's the contrary understanding of evolution. Right. And because of that, right, we don't see that issue in the Noahic covenant or in that era. But you do in Exodus because there's a time, time digression. Yeah. There's, there's a degeneration of understanding of who God is and we as human beings. And that's why in the Mosaic covenant, God had to give that commandment so that they would not degenerate even further. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's what I would argue. And this is sort of my understanding. Yeah, so uh, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the events in chapter 11, of course, take place first, and then the events in chapter 10. Um, and when people start spreading out into these people groups and nations, they start worshiping other gods. Things get worse. Uh, things degenerate, and people start worshiping all these false gods. And at that point, God has to make it explicit. Um, so he does. Good, good question. Any, any other questions? No questions, just an observation. It just seems like um, a lot of people that I have witnessed to over the years, the big thing is, oh, God is love. Right. You know, a God of love would not send people to hell or would not right. you know, send me to hell or whatever. That, yeah. kind of, that Those kind of comments. Right. And, and then I, it's amazing to me that they cannot look, they, they've heard the story of the flood, right. you know, Sunday school or from right. other people, and so they know that it's there, so I mean, yeah, but he did judge the whole world, you have to remind them, yeah. he did, he did judge, he loves us, and he definitely gave grace and mercy to save Noah and his family, but he did judge and kill the whole rest of everyone else that was on the earth, right. so yes, we have a just God. Yeah, so that's right, sense. right, so the, God has a number of attributes, he doesn't have just one attribute. One of his attributes is that he is love. Another of his attributes is he is just. And he's both of those things at the same time, all the time. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just all the time. 
Um, and the, the ultimate expression of that is the cross, where he pours out his wrath on Christ because he's a just God. But he has great mercy on us because he's a merciful God. Both at the same time, um, he's always perfectly just, he's always perfectly loving. And, and so if you, if you try to isolate only one of God's attributes, then you run into trouble. Uh, if you try to just say, oh, God is love, and, and forget about all these other attributes, then yes, you'll get a distorted picture of who God is. Uh, we have to remember that he has this number of different attributes, and he's always all those things all the time. Yeah, good, good point. So there's a good pamphlet here if you want to give out to your friends. Uh, why would a loving God allow death, death and suffering? Uh, okay, yes, yes, yes. So God, uh, common grace, there's lots of uh, manifestations of that. Uh, government is one, for example. God provides government, instituted government, to restrain the evil of man. So even bad governments tend to punish murder, for example, or punish theft and things like that. Even really bad governments restrain evil in some ways. Um, so, yes, so there's all kinds of manifestations of God's common grace. You know, the Bible puts it some, in, in some places, like he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, you know, he, right, right. he provided a conscience to all people. Yep, yep, yes. So there's, there's all these different manifestations of God's mercy in the midst of uh, his judgments and, and, and justice. Yes, very good. Okay, so we've run out of time. Let me close this with prayer.